Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, February 16th, 2023. I am so thrilled to be with you this evening, and I'm grateful to every one of you for joining and for agreeing to spend this time that we can study together tonight. V'sholchad losikach. Our parsha tells us, the portion of Mishpatim, do not take a bribe. This is a requirement of judges. Do not take a bribe. Ki hasholchad yaver because taking a bribe blinds the eyes of one who is wise. V'salev divrei and it corrupts the words of one who is a tzaddik, one who is righteous. So a judge cannot take a bribe. Now, that's pretty obvious. A judge cannot take a bribe because to do so would to destroy the integrity of law, of the judicial system. But the wording of the verse is curious. Why is it that the verse says, the Pusik says, Ki yaver It blinds the eyes of a person who's wise. And it corrupts the words of a tzaddik, of one who is righteous, if a person accepts a bribe, they're not righteous. How can you refer to a person as a tzaddik, as a righteous person who has accepted a bribe? So, there's a fascinating passage in the Talmud, Mesectic Suvos. The Talmud tells a number of stories with the following common denominator. They concern a person who is a Jewish judge. For example, Shmuel, the great sage Shmuel in the Talmud, was an expert in civil law and criminal law, and he was a judge. He was a Dayan in a Jewish court during the time of the Talmud. Talmud tells the following story. The Talmud says it once happened that Shmuel was walking in the morning, and he had to cross a bridge. There was a river in the town where he lived, and he had to cross a bridge. As he was crossing the bridge, Asao Gavra, a certain person, a, a, a man, a person, came up to him. He, he held out his hand. Here, take, you know, crossing the street, crossing the bridge. It's a little unsteady. Here, take my hand, cross the street. Help somebody cross the street. It's not, it's not such a big deal. Amalei Shmuel said to him, What are you doing in this neighborhood? Amalei, this man said to Shmuel, not necessarily knowing who he was, Dina Isli, I have a court case today. I am one of the litigants in a court case, so I'm going to the courthouse. It happens that Shmuel was the Dayan, was the judge. Amalei, Shmuel said to him, Psil nolach ledina, I have to recuse myself. I can't judge your case. You'll have to have another judge. Because that interaction that we just had, you gave me your hand to cross the street, that creates a relationship where I might be persuaded to throw the case. I might not judge objectively, and I have to recuse myself. And the Talmud goes on to tell several other stories. Uh, there was another person, his name is Amemar, another famous uh, sage in the Talmud. He was also a Dayan. Amemer Havak Yosifaka Dayandina. Amemer was sitting and he was about to start judging a case. Parach Gadfa Areshe, a feather flew like a little crumb, a feather, something flew on his hair, and somebody just came over and, you know, just just uh, cleaned it off for him. I mean, it's a simple civil gesture. Amalei. Amemar said to this man, "My Vidatech, why are you here in the courthouse today?" Armalei, deniously, I, I have a case today. I'm I'm a litigant in a case today. Armalei, Amemar said, "Psil nalach ladina, I can't judge your case." What's going on? I mean, somebody shakes your hand, and that creates a relationship that that's considered like, and and and, and the Talmud quotes our pasuk. So far. You're talking about these great scholars, righteous people, and because somebody took their hand to cross the bridge, somebody, you know, does this to the jacket when there's something on it, somebody says hello to you, you're not going to be able to judge 
objectively? I mean, we're talking about great people here. You think really that they're going to sway the case because someone said hello to them on the way to the courthouse? Okay, I understand an actual bribe. Okay, fine, an actual bribe, but something like this, and these stories, and there's a passage, there's several of these stories, one after the other. And the Talmud quotes our verse. Do not take a bribe, because a bribe blinds the eyes of one who is wise and corrupts the words of one who is righteous. Everyone is affected by receiving from someone even something as slight as a greeting, because it's automatic. It is inescapable. It is not possible to consciously guard against. The only way to avoid it is to avoid receiving anything, even as slight as a hand outstretched. In other words, it doesn't require criminal intent to accept a bribe and to be swayed in judgment. You can be a tzaddik. You can be a wise person. No ill intent. And you can still be swayed because it's automatic. It's inevitable. And the Talmud explains, what is the etymology of this word shochat? So we translate it as bribe. What's the etymology? Etymology. The Talmud says, shehu kechad. It creates a connection between you and the other person. You become as if you're one person. It's, un it's subconscious. It's automatic. And it can prevent you from judging objectively. The words of the verse are very precise. Lo sikach shochad ki ha-shochad yaver chachamim. The shochad, a bribe, can blind, can blind the eyes. That means you won't know that you don't see it. It's not talking about you're going to accept a bribe of $1,000 to judge corruptly. I mean, obviously that's true. But yaver, you won't even see it. You will be blinded to it. Even if you remain a, a righteous person, you'll still be affected. I heard this amazing story from Rabbi Yisrael Reisman. In the late 1500s, the greatest Jewish scholar of Jewish civil law was Rabbi Yehoshua Falk. He wrote a work called Sefer Meiras Enayim, known as SMA, that's the acronym, and that work is the standard commentary to the Shulchan Aruch Choshe Mishpat, to the volume of the Code of Jewish Law that deals with civil law. He was the world's greatest expert in Jewish civil law in the late 1500s. It happened that he once had a case with another person. They were both litigants against each other in a certain matter. So they went to Betin. They went to a Jewish court. They went to the Bezin of the Maharsha. Maharsha was Rabbi Shmuel Idols, also a great, great scholar, but nowhere near as highly regarded when it comes to civil law as Rabbi Falk. Okay, but if you have a court case, you have to go... You have to go to a Betin. You have to go to a Jewish court. So they went to the Betin of the Marshal. The litigants presented their arguments. The judges, led by Rabbi Idols, conferred and deliberated. And they came back with a decision against Rabbi Falk. Okay, well, I mean... That's how it works. If, if the court decides against you, then you have to accept their judgment. So Rabbi Falk accepted the judgment. Fine. But after the case was over, he went over to the marshal, to Rabbi Ayos, and says, okay, listen, you judged, you adjudicated, you decided, I accept, I follow your decision, I'm, I, I, I have to pay the money, fine. We're, it's over, fine. But just explain something to me. I mean, you do realize that I'm right. I mean, you understand that my reasoning, when it comes to civil law, there is no one that compares with my reasoning. I, you, you had to have seen that my side, my argument, was the most persuasive. 
And the Marsha said to him, the judge said to him, let me show you the reasoning that we relied on in order to rule against you. We'll show you the reasoning. It's written here in this Sefer, in this book. And he opens up the Sma. He opens Rabbi Falk's own work and shows him, here's the reasoning that shows that you're wrong. That's why we adjudicated against you. That's why we judged against you. Rabbi Falk was aghast. I mean, come on. He's supposed to be the greatest expert, and here it is because it was his case. He was blinded to the truth that he himself had written in his own commentary. He was, he was, he was beside himself. And the Marsha said to him, Rabbi Falk, with all respect, don't be upset. Everyone does this. It happens to everyone. It blinds. If it's your case, you are not going to be able to see it objectively. It doesn't matter if you're the greatest expert in the world. You're not going to be able to see it. And therefore, even a person who is righteous, who is wise, could be swayed. But I want to share a second insight into this. And this insight is something that, even if we're not a judge ourselves, is relevant to every single one of us. And this is an approach that is written by Rabbi Avram Pam of Blessed Memory. So he asked the same question. You really mean to tell me the, the, the stories in the Talmud? You really mean to tell me that Shmuel, Amemar, these great sages, they couldn't guard themselves against judging unfairly because somebody said hello to them, because somebody shook their hand. I mean, come on. Is that really what's happening here? Listen to what Rabbi Pam says. Rabbi Pam says the lesson of the Talmud is not so much about judicial integrity. It's about gratitude. It's about how obligated we should feel if someone says hello to us. It's about how indebted we should feel when someone does the slightest kindness to us. If we feel that it's really nothing, then we may not be influenced because it's nothing. But the Talmud is teaching us that we should not view it as nothing. The Talmud is teaching us that we should view the simplest word, the simplest act, of civility, of kindness, and be deeply grateful for it. It's not nothing. It's not just a word. It's not just saying hello. And the truth is, if we're honest, for many of us, we often go to the other extreme. We so often take for granted even the considerable kindness of others, especially, here's the irony, those who are closest to us. So check yourself on this. Please don't give me an answer, but just check yourself. Are you more likely to say thank you to a waiter who serves you in a restaurant than you are to your spouse who serves you a meal in your home? Just check yourself. The truth is, many of us should be thanking our spouse constantly just for putting up with us. Of course, we have to have gratitude for the big things. Of course. But sometimes, something small, something that might appear on the surface to be insignificant, it has a deep impact. It can change your mood. It can change your outlook. It can change your day. Someone says hello to you and they really mean it. Someone says, how are you? And it's not just a greeting, but they really want to know how you are. It's just a few words. But do you recognize how you feel when someone has done that kind of a kindness to you? What a privilege to live in a world where people are sometimes good, often good. 
Not all the time. But when it happens, it's not slight. It's momentous if you focus on it. And I'll tell you something. Uh, I find, personally, the older I get, the deeper I feel this. I find this happening to me a lot these days, where someone will say or do the slightest thing, just hello in a friendly voice, just the slightest favor. It took them no effort, but I don't know. If I, fo I don't always focus on it, of course. I, ha I have a lot of improvement that I have to do on myself. But, but if I can get myself to focus on it, it changes my day, changes my mood, changes my outlook. It's not nothing. Of course, if I focus on it, but that's, the, but that's what the Talmud is saying, that we should be focusing on it. And reading this verse in our Parsha and reviewing these stories in the Talmud should remind us to focus on just how much a casual word can mean to us and, of course, how much our casual word can mean to someone else. It can make all the difference. And if we do that, we may be required to judge far fewer cases, but we will be much happier people. This Shabbos, in addition to the weekly Torah portion of the Parsha Mishpatim, we have a special portion that we read, Parsha Shkolim, the portion of the shekel, which is the silver coins. This Shabbos is the first of four special portions where we read a special portion from the Torah and a special Haftorah, two of them before Purim, two of them after Purim. This Shabbos is the first of four. And each of them are about making some kind of announcement that we need to be aware of. Each one is different. Let's just focus on the first one. The Parsh of Shkolim concerns the subject of the annual collection of funds for Bedekabayis. When the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple, stood in Jerusalem, it, had, it needed upkeep. There were lots of utensils. There were lots of things there. It was a very active place every single day. Things wore out. They had to be replaced. They had to be fixed. It took funds. So there was an annual required donation that every person was supposed to give, and that was used to repair the, the Beis HaMikdash and to prepare. And the reason that we read this now, about two weeks before Purim, because that means it's about six weeks before Pesach, because if you're going to do renovations on the Beis HaMikdash and that busiest day of the year is the day before Pesach, remember, everyone comes to the Beis HaMikdash to offer the Karben Pesach, the sacrificial offering in, in, in honor of the Seder. So that's the big day. Well, of course, you want to do the renovations in advance. If you want to do the renovations in advance, you have to collect the funds in advance. So this was the annual announcement. Pesach is coming in six weeks. Make sure you give in your donation so that we can do the repairs that we need for the annual uh, renovation for the Beis HaMikdash. So it'll be ready for Pesach. And on this Shabbos, we read the portion that comes from the Torah portion of Kisisa, where God commands the Jewish people when they are to build the Mishkan. This is when the first sanctuary is built, when the Jews are in the desert. And God says that every single person had to bring a half shekel coin. And number one, they counted the coins to know how many people there were. But number two, they took the coins, silver coins, and they used them to make the adonim, the sockets, the base of the planks of wood that would form the mishkan, the sanctuary that traveled with them through the desert. So in other words, this was the capital campaign. And it was the most successful fundraising campaign in all of Jewish history because every single Jewish person gave 
the half-shekel coin. And it was successful every year in the upkeep for centuries, for hundreds of years. Every single year, every person gave the half-shekel coin and the base amygdala stayed in good order. Well, it's a good cause <laughs> to build the Mishkan. Wouldn't you contribute a half-shekel coin to build the Mishkan, to build the, the sanctuary? And let's remember the old adage of fundraising. It's easier to raise funds to build something than it is to maintain it. So the genius is, of course, of course everybody wants to donate to build the Mishkan, but now the question is in year two, in year three, in year 478 and 479. And the, and the success was that it worked for centuries, for hundreds of years. It was successful. But even the best fundraising needs to be reevaluated from time to time. And so in addition to the Torah reading, special for this Shabbos, about each person being obligated to give the half shekel on an annual basis, we have the Haftorah, the section from the prophets. And this is a Haftorah that comes from the Book of Kings, Sefer Malachim. And this is a narrative that is as relevant in Jewish fundraising today as it was in the Beis Amigdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, over 2,500 years ago. And the story goes like this. About 700 years after the initial command to give the half shekel, so it was working, it was going annually, every year, for about 700 years. This is towards the end of the first temple period. And there began to be a spiritual decline among the Jewish people at that time, which, of course, we know ended with the destruction of the first temple, the Chorban Bayes Risha. So there's this period of spiritual decline, and people are not so careful in keeping the mitzvahs. Things are not going so well. And the Book of Kings, Sefer Malachim, tells us about a king named Yehoash. Yehoash was his name. And the, the Nabi tells us, Fayas Yehoash Hayashar ben Hashem. Yehoash, King Yehoash, he did well. He did the right thing in God's eyes. He was a good person. He wanted the people to be good. But, but you know, <laughs> he was living in a society that at that time had become somewhat corrupted. And there had been some slippage. There had been a slacking off when it came to every person donating this half shekel on an annual basis. Yehoash said to the Kohanim, to the priests, who are the ones who are collecting the money and then they're supposed to spend it on the renovations. He said to them, well, what did you do with the money? Every year you collect this money. Where is it? What did you use it for? And it turns out they were using it for their own personal benefit. There was corruption. And people who were in charge of collecting funds in charge of spending it wisely to support the base of Migdash, the holy temple in Jerusalem, God's house. They were lining their own pockets. And it's frustrating if you're the king and you want to do the right thing, but then you have the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, who's in charge of the base of Migdash, and that person has become corrupt. It's very frustrating. And it was, there was one year during Yehoash's reign, they didn't do any repairs. They stole the money. They stole it. So Yehoash took action because he was deeply frustrated and deeply upset at the corruption that had crept in. So he took action. He called in the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, and he said to him, Why are you 
derelicting your duty. Why are you collecting money from the entire Jewish people and you're not spending it the way you're supposed to spend it? And he said to them, don't take a cent from any person until you resolve this problem. And he commanded that the Kohanim should build a new container that the Jewish people could put their half shekel into. You couldn't just come up anymore and just hand it the Kohen. No, no, no. There was a container and it was locked and there was one opening wide enough for a coin. So you couldn't take anything out. Jews would come, put their coin in. When the box was full, then the, 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 the king decreed it cannot be opened by any individual. It's got to be opened by the treasurer of the king and the Kohen Gadol, two people watching each other open the box, count the funds, and make sure that it's used properly. And this box, by the way, for the collection of these coins, was placed right next to the Mizbeach, right next to the altar. Because this was not just a financial issue, this was a spiritual issue. And there was corruption, and it needed to be corrected. And Yehoash took the action to bring the practice back into the way it should have been. And he was successful in this. He returned the practice to the way it should have been, and that lasted for many, many more years. But here's the lesson. The lesson is, we cannot allow corruption when it comes to financial matters. And some people will say, well, you know, we're a synagogue, we're a Jewish organization, you know, it's a holy purpose. Of course we're doing the right thing. If you're a religious organization, if you're a Jewish organization, you have to have a higher standard of responsibility. You have to have a higher level of transparency, not lower. In the past, I've told you stories about a great, a great, great scholar of the late 1800s, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. Rabbi Yisrael Salanter once went to visit a very wealthy man. And while they were talking, they were sitting in the man's home in his study in his home. And while they were talking, it happens that there was a large stack of money on the desk sitting there. It wasn't the subject of their conversation, but it just happened. He was a wealthy man, and there was a, a large amount of money on the desk. While they were talking, someone knocked on the door and called the homeowner, this wealthy man, that he needed to attend to something else for a moment. So he said, Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, please, please excuse me. Please wait here. I'll be back in just a moment. Please excuse me. The man went out to take care of whatever he had to take care of. He came back into the study. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta is not there. Where did he go? He starts looking around. Where is he? He can't find him. Finally, he sees Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. He's walking around outside. He calls to him. He opens the door. Calls to him, Rebbe, wh why are you outside? What, what, what happened? We were, I said, please wait here. I'll be back in a minute. Why are you outside? Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said to this man, he said, when you left the room to attend to whatever you had to attend to, was there a large amount of money on the table? The man said, yes. But, I mean, there is nobody more honest in the world than Rabbi Yisrael Salanta. There's no issue with that. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta said, just as it is prohibited for a man and woman who are not married to each other to be alone because of the possibility that one of them may act immorally, so too it is likewise prohibited for a person to be in the same room as a large amount of money that does not belong to them because of the possibility, however remote, that the person may act immorally. And so Rabbi Yisrael Sancho said, when you left the room, I had to leave the house until you came back. It's not enough to be without deceit. It's necessary to be without even the appearance of deceit. And that's the lesson that our Haftorah 
teaches us this Shabbos. I want to share with you one last piece, please. So, tonight's Thursday night. This coming Tuesday and Wednesday is Rosh Chodesh Adar, the beginning of the Jewish month of Adar, which is fantastic. Our sages tell us, Mishinichnas Adar Marba Mesimcha. When the month of Adar arrives, our joy increases. Fantastic. Looking forward to it. This Shabbos is the Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh, before the beginning of the Jewish month, and on the Shabbos before every Rosh Chodesh, we call it Shabbos Mavarchim, the Sabbath of blessing. Because on this Shabbos, we will say before the Musaf prayer, the Birchas HaChodesh, the blessing for the new month. Now, this prayer section of the, of the prayer service has two parts. And I'd like to discuss both of, of them with you tonight, but I'd like to go out of order, out of the order in which we say them. During the time that the Beis Hamikdash was standing, the Holy Temple was standing in Jerusalem, the way the new month was established was not based on a calendar, it was based on eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses would see the new moon, of course, goes through cycles, so the moon appears to, to it, it seems to us as if it's disappeared, it's not visible for a certain number of hours, and then it reappears. We call that the new moon. And on that night, Witnesses would see, ah, there's the new moon, the slightest crescent of the new moon. And the witnesses would travel to the Sanhedrin, to the great court in Jerusalem, and they would come and testify. We saw the new moon last night, and this is where it was in the sky, and this is the way it was pointing, this is how it looked. And the judges who were expert in these matters would cross-examine the witnesses, and if they were found to be telling the truth, then the judges would decide today is Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the Jewish month. But here's the thing. It wasn't automatic. It wasn't just that as soon as the new moon appeared, that means that that day was the beginning of the Jewish month. No. It had to be proclaimed by the Sanhedrin, by the great court in Jerusalem. After examining the eyewitnesses and deliberating, everyone present would stand and the head of the court, the head of the Sanhedrin would say, Makudosh, today is sanctified as Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the month. And everyone who was present would respond, Makudosh, Makudosh, sanctified, sanctified. And that's what made it sanctified. This process continued even after the destruction of the Second Temple for a certain amount of time. However, by the time we got to the end of the Talmudic era, around the year 550, somewhere around that approximately, the time when there was the last Sanhedrin and it was deteriorating and there was not going to continue to be a Sanhedrin, a great court anymore, that last Sanhedrin computed our calendar in advance. And at one time... In, in one fell swoop, that Sanhedrin, knowing that there would not be another Sanhedrin until the Mashiach comes, which we're still waiting for the Messianic era to come and the Sanhedrin to be reinstated, that Sanhedrin knew they needed to sanctify every new month in advance. And so in one shot, they pre-sanctified all the months, including this one coming up, until Mashiach comes and there's a Sanhedrin to start doing it with eyewitnesses again. Today we follow that calendar that they established all those years ago. So there is nothing for us to do to make Rosh Chodesh the beginning of the Jewish month. It was already done by that earlier Sanhedrin centuries ago. On the Shabbos before Rosh Chodesh, when people are gathered in the synagogue, we recall what the Sanhedrin would do on Rosh Chodesh in ancient times. Now, we don't imitate that exactly, but we all stand, 
and we announce this Shabbos we're going to stand and we're going to announce when the new lunar cycle will begin and which day Rosh Chodesh is the beginning of the Jewish month. We're going to announce it So on this Shabbos, if you're in the synagogue, we're going to announce that Rosh Chodesh, the beginning of the Jewish month, we celebrate Rosh Chodesh this Tuesday and Wednesday, and the Molad, the actual beginning of the new lunar cycle, is this Monday morning at about 5.40 a.m. Montreal time. Now, in the past, we have discussed how can it be that the Molad, the actual beginning of the lunar cycle, is on Monday, but the first day of Adar is actually Wednesday. How does that work out? We've discussed that in the past. Let's leave that to the side for now. We'll, we'll review that another time. But the Molad is the moment when the new moon would be visible under ideal circumstances. Now, to be precise, it's not the actual time of the new lunar cycle. It is the, the time that we announce is based on the average length of a lunar cycle. It turns out a lunar cycle is not exactly the same every single month. It varies, actually quite a few hours. But what we announce is based on the average it's pretty close. It's within a couple of seconds, but it's pretty close, but it's not exactly, exactly precise. So what we're going to announce is, and, and the reason for the discrepancy is because the actual lunar cycle, the average, is 29 days, 12 hours, 44 minutes, and approximately 3 seconds. But the actual lunar cycle varies a little bit month to month. However, since this announcing on Shabbos takes the place of and reminds us of the actual sanctification of the new month that was done by the Sanhedrin in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem, we want, when we make this announcement on Shabbos in our shul on Shabbos, to feel a connection to Jerusalem. So, for that reason, we don't announce the time of the Molad in local time. We announce the time of the Molad because if it would be local time, every synagogue would be announcing a different time. Toronto would have a different time. London would have a different time. Right? Every time zone would have a different time. But in fact, the Molad happens at one moment for the entire world. So what we do is we announce the time in Jerusalem time. Every synagogue in the world announces the same moment of the Molad for that month because they're not announcing where the local time is for them. They're announcing the time in Jerusalem. So, what we will announce this Shabbos, if you're in Shul, you'll hear it, is that the Molad for the month of Adar is Monday morning, 5 hours, 40 minutes, and 36 seconds past midnight, Jerusalem local standard time. Meaning it's local time not divided into time zones. It's standard time that's not relevant to us, but in the summer it does not take into account daylight savings time. And that's the time that we announce so that we're, everyone in the world is making the same announcement and we're all connecting ourselves to Jerusalem at that moment. Okay. That's the second part. But before we get to the announcement part, we say a prayer. And the prayer is called Birchas HaKodesh, the blessing for the new month. And this prayer contains a fundamental lesson that every single one of us needs to absorb. One of the most painful experiences for a religious person is to pray for something, to pray to God for something that's really important and to be let down. 
I can remember this happening to me. I can remember a specific event in my life when I was praying for something and it was really important and it could have happened. It, it didn't require any kind of splitting of the Red Sea or any kind of miracle. It could have happened. And it didn't happen and it was very, very bad for me and for my family. And I remember it happened before Rosh Hashanah and I remember that year I came to Rosh Hashanah, to synagogue in Rosh Hashanah, and I was feeling angry. I was let down. I was disappointed in God. This is one of the most common reasons that people stop being religious because what's the use? You pray to God, it's like talking to the wall. What's the use? We expect to be able to ask God for something that's important for us and for God to fulfill our wishes. But here's the truth. Sometimes that may happen, but that's a misunderstanding of the purpose of prayer. The correct attitude that we should have to prayer when we ask for something and we really, really want it is included in the prayer that we will say this Shabbos. Because since we're going to announce when the new month is going to begin, we first say a prayer asking God for good things to happen to us in this month. That we should be okay, that we should be healthy, that our families should be okay, we should be able to support ourselves and our families. We pray for all sorts of things that we want to happen in this month. And it's an intense moment. And we should say it with feeling and emotion. And we ask for all kinds of things in this prayer. Hashem, may it be your will that the new month that is about to begin should be a month that is filled with goodness for us and blessings for us and give us a long life and give us peace and give us goodness, and give us blessing, and give us sustenance, and give us health. And it goes on, all the things that we ask for. And it ends with the following words, give us long life. Chayim, life. Sheyimolu mishalos libenu where you fulfill the wishes of our heart. God, we're asking you in this month, you should listen to us. If we ask for something, you should listen to us. Give us what we're asking for, what we're praying for. We're being sincere. God, you should give us what we're asking for, but that's not exactly what we say. The words of the prayer are, Chaim, we ask God to give us life, Give us, please, what we're asking for, for good. Litova, for good. Now, what does that mean? That last word, litova. I mean, obviously, if we're asking for it, the requests of our heart, obviously, if we're asking for something, it's good. Nobody's going to ask for bad health. No one's going to ask to be unhappy in this month. If we're asking for it, it's good, right? What do we mean? Give us things that are good, that are in our heart, for good. Listen, please, to one of the classic commentaries of the Talmud, Rashash. There are things that we may pray for thinking that they are good for us. But the truth is, if we would get what we would ask for, sometimes it might not be good for us. Sometimes we don't know what the right thing is to ask for. And so therefore, we ask God to fulfill our requests if they are truly litova, good for us. If you ever lived in New York, you may know about a store called Zabar's. Zabar's is a very special place. 
It's a food store. It's the most wonderful, but it's not just a store. It's it's just it's an experience. It's it's on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. If you've been there, you know what I'm saying. When we go back to New York, I miss it so much. We I always try to go to Zabar's. It's just it's just an experience. They have everything there. It's so wonderful. The people, it's just it's hard for me to put it in words, but I'm going to limit myself just to the counter that serves smoked salmon. <laughs> the counter that serves smoked salmon is, I don't know, 20 feet long with, I'm not exaggerating, many dozens of types and styles of smoked salmon that, of course, the staff behind the counter will slice for you. And they also have very, very good kosher smoked salmon. It happens to be my favorite smoked salmon of the world, the Zabar's kosher smoked salmon. Okay, that's a separate issue. If you're going, get some, you'll enjoy it. Okay. Some people call it lox. Lox is a little bit different than smoked salmon, but people call it lox, smoked salmon, you know, but there's, it, it, it's dizzying. I mean, you go there, and of course, most of the people who go on Sunday morning for bagels and lox to Zabar's, you know, they know exactly what they want. They know exactly what they want. They know who they want it to cut, who they want to cut it. They, they, New Yorkers know. But sometimes you get a person and they don't know and they're bewildered. I mean, can you imagine 20 feet long case of different kinds of smoked salmon? What are you going to do? How are you going to choose? There was a married couple lived in New York and they moved away. They moved to the Berkshires you know, they moved to the, to the rural area in Massachusetts. And they lived there for about 15 years. They came back once to visit. Well, if you come back to Manhattan, you have to come visit Zabar's. They hadn't been there in 15 years. Their New York uh, um, mentality was a little bit worn away. Not quite as sharp. So the husband comes to the counter, and, and he's just overwhelmed. I mean, he knows he wants something there, but, uh, you know, and, and of course there's a crowd. And so the counterman says, what do you want? And the man says, uh, mm, some locks. <laughs> locks, fine. But what kind of locks? I mean, we have 25 different kinds. What kind? Show me which one you want. And uh, he sees a sign on top, it says something, he sees Alaskan locks, he says, Alaskan locks. The man behind the counter realizes that this customer, he's, he's lost his way. He doesn't, know. he doesn't know what he's talking about. So he says to him, like you would speak to a child, he says, listen, let me ask you a question. Do you want salty? <laughs> you want salty? And the man says, no, I don't like salty. So the man says, then why are you asking for Alaskan locks? Alaskan locks is the saltiest thing we have. He says, here, and he cuts him a slice of something else. It's actually Scottish smoked salmon. He says, here, taste this. Tell me, is this what you like? He says, wow, this is exactly what I like. This is the perfect thing. That's what I want. I'll take that. So the counterman says, calmly, patiently, he says, for the future, you should know that's Scottish smoked salmon. That's the one that you like. He wraps it up and he hands it to him. And then he says to the man, he says, when you come to this counter, some guys, they're going to give you what you ask for. Me? No. I'm going to give you what you want. That's what God does. God doesn't necessarily give us what we ask for. God gives us what we want, what we need, what is good for us. Our sages tell us when we cry to God, the Talmud says, the gates of tears are never locked. We actually say this in our prayers at Ni'ilah, the end of Yom Kippur. The word Ni'ilah means the closing of the gates. And we say these words, 
even though the gates are closing, the last chance to beg for forgiveness and atonement is coming to an end as Ni'ilah, as Yom Kippur ends, even as the gates are closing, we say, Share Dema'os, the gates of tears. A person who prays with tears, with real emotion, Kelonish Lavos, those gates never close. Those gates are always open. God is always listening to that kind of genuine prayer. The great Hasidic Rebbe, Reb Baruch of Mezrich, asked the following question. Okay, if the gates of tears never close, why are there gates? Why do you need a gate if it never closes? The gates of prayer, I understand. They open, they close. They're open for Yom Kippur, Ni'ilah, they close. Fine. If the gates of tears are always open, why do you need a gate? Said Reb Baruch, there's a gate there to block prayers that are not really good for us. Because God doesn't give us what we ask for. God gives us what we need, what's good for us. Only God knows what's best for us. And for us to think otherwise, for us to think that we know exactly what we want, it's chutzpah. And that's why our requests are tentative. They're limited. So, if the outcome of a prayer is not guaranteed, what's the purpose of prayer? It is the guarantee that every prayer is heard by God. Yes, prayer creates the relationship between us and God. The closeness. Through prayer, we see God as one who wants what is best for us, even better than what we may think we know about ourselves. We don't always know what is best for us. But we are assured that God will fulfill our heartfelt requests in the way that is good for us. That is our prayer. And that's the guarantee of the experience of prayer. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening, a fantastic Shabbos, and a great new month of Adar, Rosh Chodesh, this week. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.